0: Good morning, church, and Merry Christmas. Yes, it's so wonderful to be together here this Christmas Eve morning. What a wonderful opportunity for us to meaningfully gather around Advent, even on uh, this day, and study God's Word and worship Him as we look at Him revealed in the Word of God. So if you would open up your Bible, if you got one of those, open it up to the book of Matthew chapter 2. And we are going to pick up in this Advent series right where we left off last week. We finished up chapter one last week and so we'll start reading in chapter two. And I'm gonna read this whole thing to us and then we'll dive in. We've got a lot of work to do, but I think it's gonna be helpful and edifying to us. Matthew chapter two, the gospel writer records these words. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, Now he quotes the Old Testament prophet. And you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen in its rising, led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken the, by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So have you ever had an experience of deja vu? It's that, it's that feeling that something that's happening in front of you has already happened before. It's, it looks very familiar as if it just already happened, as if what you're seeing, you've seen before. And sometimes... Literary works are built in with deja vu moments. Sometimes literary works will tip their hats to other great works of literature in ways that are very subtle, and it's only the informed reader that picks up on these cues that have been left by the the writer. So for example, it's an acknowledged fact now that the, uh, the, the story of The Lion King, the movie The Lion King is really a retelling of the story of Hamlet. That might be news. to Maybe you're just learning that this morning. That's my Christmas gift to you. Uh, it is a retail, the, the producers even acknowledge it uh, from the start. So once you know that, you see things differently, right? They both center around fatherless, a fatherless prince. They both feature terrible uncles, Right? So you see these things. Uh, Simba and Hamlet's uncles convince them to exile themselves. Both Simba and Hamlet's fathers reappear to their sons as ghosts. Matter of fact, in the first version, the first cut version of the Lion King, it was going to end with a quote from Hamlet from the play Hamlet, they thought there was two on the nose, so they backed out of that and wrote it a slightly different way at the end. In other words, once you know that, to watch the one is to relive the other. It stirs a memory. And this is just what we find all over the Advent stories in the Gospels. The drama of redemption that takes place around the manger is reaching back and invoking all these earlier stories and earlier events and earlier rescues and earlier dangers. And so there are all these recognizable echoes ringing in our ears. If we're steeped in the Old Testament, we hear it because Matthew is a great storyteller. He is steeped in the Old Testament and he doesn't want you to miss the lap. right? So for us as Christians, What does that mean? It means we read this story differently and we don't just read it as ancient history, right? Knowing this, knowing that they're they're seeing these Old Testament patterns fulfilled in Jesus helps us right here today as Christians. It helps you locate yourself in the story that God is writing, right? So that we're able to locate where we are. And what else? It gives you hope because you know what happens next. These, these patterns keep recurring. And so once you know that, you know where we are isn't the last, it's not the last act in the unfolding story of redemption. You know what happens next is death leads to resurrection. You know what happens next when you read the Old Testament patterns is exiles find their way back home. You read the Old Testament and you find out weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So you come to expect this. These patterns laid down have led you this way. So I hope that we're going to see the drama of redemption unfolding in this passage together this morning. First thing that we see is a spiritual war, a spiritual war. So the Bible is a story of war, and that war is a battle for the human heart. Matter of fact, if you want to get a great book for your nieces and nephews or your grandkids and you want to read it to them, there's a great book called Grandpa's Box, And Grandpa's box is written by Star Mead, and basically it's Star Mead just saying, "Here I'm gonna help you tell the story of how battle is woven through the entire Bible. And so you've got this, it's called Grandpa's box because he opens up, the grandpa opens up a box. Grandpa's a woodworker, and he's crafted and carved all these little figures, and he takes a figure out of the box, and he tells them a story about the battle that God is uh, engaged in throughout the Bible. Here's the thing, at no point in history... Does the spiritual battle rage so fiercely as it does when Jesus is born in Bethlehem? When Jesus arrives... It is, it is on, right? The reason that the Gospels, read through the Gospels, the reason the Gospels are so full of excitement, you got miracles and signs and flashes in the heavens and angels and demons and fireworks and resurrections and healings and murderous plots, right? The reason all that's happening is the battle is at a fever pitch because Christ is here. The Prince has arrived. He's the one who is set to bring victory and now that the Prince has arrived, it's guns blazing in all directions, right? We're not even into verse three of our passage. Before the child, Jesus is in great danger. By the way, that's Matthew's main way of referring to Jesus in chapter two. So that leads us to the next element, is the child. Nine times, Jesus is simply called the child. It's Matthew's way of, of suggesting to you the vulnerable place that, that the Christ is in. He is, he is not In all of his glory, exalted, he is vulnerable. He is the child. And and the powers of the world are, are arrayed against his existence. And all of that, while we read that, there's deja vu to the Old Testament. The memory is stirring, right? You may remember the great act of deliverance in the Old Testament. God sends Moses to deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt. But what does Moses look like the first time you see him? He doesn't look like much of a deliverer. He doesn't look like he's going to be bringing any deliverance. He looks like he's going to need some, right? He looks extremely vulnerable. He is a child in a basket floating down the Nile River. He looks incredibly endangered. Pharaoh's, by the way, Pharaoh, another echo, it's Pharaoh is trying to do what? He's trying to kill and exterminate all the Hebrew boys. We're going to see that moment reoccur in our text as well. And yet somehow, even though Pharaoh is bent on destroying and stamping out the Hebrew boys, somehow Moses is preserved. And in the midst of this, deja vu, a memory stirs, right? The hope of Israel's deliverance could hardly look more helpless. Speaking of helpless, you wonder why would King Herod take any interest in a child born in a small Nowhere town, a has-been town. Great things had happened in that town a thousand years ago, but it's been a nowhere town ever since. Why would King Herod take interest in a child born in a has-been town? The answer is in verse 2. Wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star at its rising and we have come to worship him. Verse 3 says, Herod is immediately troubled. So we move to the next element in the drama of redemption, namely a paranoid king. So why is Herod so deeply troubled? Again, he hears them ask, where's the one born king of the Jews? He's troubled, why? Because last time Herod checked, I'm the king of the Jews. It's literally written on his office door. It's his Twitter handle, Herod. King of the Jews, right? And so when rumors pass that there's this child somewhere that has my title, I'm very interested. Tell me more. Show me where he is that I might find him and worship him as well. And in 16 verses, Herod moves from hearing a king has been born to verse 16, ordering the massacre of every Hebrew boy to age two and under throughout the region, matter of fact, the reason that it said that Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him is because when this particular king gets troubled, he usually starts swinging swords at people. And we are within reach. We are in the blast radius of Herod's fury. He is a paranoid king and we're five miles from his headquarters. He'll do anything to retain power. By the way, this might help to know from, from the rest of history, other parts of history tell us, this same Herod, fearing plots that might have been arising against him, ordered the execution of his own wife and three of his own sons. So he is, he is not somebody who's just blowing smoke. He is ready, he is ready to do hard things. The, the carol would go on to say, the The carol that we sing every Christmas speaks about Jesus the king. And what does it say? It says the impact, the upshot of the king arriving is, let earth receive her king and let every heart prepare him room. Everybody on bended knee, do what the magi are doing, their impulses are right, he's the king. He is set to rule the world. Everybody who recognizes better get low and get low fast. He's the real king. The message of Christmas, understand it, and it's a good day for us to remember this. It is not some syrupy, sentimental story. It is good news of peace and good news of joy to all who bow before the rightful king. And his name is Jesus. Jesus has come into the world and your life and this world will be judged on what you do with the claim that he is the king. Do you receive it? Will earth receive her king and every heart prepare him room or will we respond and reject and be apathetic and dismiss this king? One results in salvation, the other results in judgment. And so we see the drama of kingship and we hear next the sound of weeping. So Herod sends the wise men to find the Christ. They don't come back because an angel warns him and says, hey, hey, he doesn't wanna come worship. <laughs> he's not interested in worship. He's, he's gonna exterminate this kid. So to go back another way. Don't go back and report where he is, right? So Herod realizes they didn't come back and report and it's been a long time. And so he says, all right, that, all right, I'll figure out another way. Everybody under the age of two, that should get it. Everybody under the age of two is gonna die. Every male in that entire region is gonna be executed. And then Matthew, the storyteller, lets you overhear the mothers of Bethlehem weeping in the streets. It is a dramatic retelling of the event that took place there. But Matthew, he doesn't just let you overhear the women who are weeping, but he lets you know this has happened before in these very streets. Women have wept in these exact streets. This is a deja vu moment, and he wants you to be aware of it. And so what does he do? He quotes from Jeremiah. Centuries earlier, he quotes from Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet. And that Old Testament prophet, Jeremiah, wrote about how the children of Israel were going to be crushed by the Babylonian soldiers. And those children of Israel were then going to be carried off out of Jerusalem and into exile in Babylon. And Matthew stirs this memory, and he says, we've heard mothers weeping over their children in these very streets before. And in this masterful storytelling of Matthew, he's writing now 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so he's showing you patterns and stories what happened there and what happened next and here's the awesome thing what Matthew is doing right is Matthew is invoking Jeremiah 31 he knows what the whole passage is about and his listeners Hebrew people they know what the larger story of Jeremiah 31 is about and so he is saying this here's the larger context I'll read it to you Jeremiah 31 this is what the Lord says a voice was heard in Ramah these are the verses Matthew quotes A lament with bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Here's the next verse. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration and your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. This is the Lord's declaration just simply citing Jeremiah 31 and knowing that they have the larger map of Jeremiah 31 already printed in their minds, he knows that they're gonna understand what he's saying. They're gonna pick up what he's putting down. And what he's putting down is, desolation doesn't have the last word. We've heard the echoes and we hear where this story of weeping, where it ends. Read the next verse, Matthew is saying. So we hear the sound of weeping. And then another element in this drama is promises kept. Promises kept, so Matthew has this habit of interrupting his historical accounts with explanations about how this fulfills what was spoken earlier by the prophet. So he's telling the story and then he says, oh, but this also was prophesied about centuries before. Now all this took place, he says, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet and so on. You see it, if you wanna mark it in your Bible, verse 15, verse 17, verse 23, Also, you see it earlier when Herod asked the Old Testament scholars, where is this Christ supposed to be born? And the Old Testament scholars say, we know exactly where he's supposed to show up because we know Micah. Micah's prophecy reads this way. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah because out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The, the scribes and the Old Testament scholars, they said, if you want to know where he's going to show up, we can tell you. The Old Testament called it way well in advance. Micah said it 700 years ago, that the Christ child would show up in all, of all places in Bethlehem. Here's the thing. You know, we, we read the Bible, and we treat prophecy like it's no big deal because, because we just see, right, this was said before, and then, oh, apparently it happened. So imagine it this way. Imagine a 1,000 years ago, God assembles the angels in heaven, and he says, I'm gonna teach you this morning a lesson about foreknowledge, divine foreknowledge, which just means God knows the future. I'm gonna teach you angels a lesson about divine foreknowledge. And he draws them a picture a thousand years ago of this room, this exact room with the exact number of seats in it, and he writes at the top of that page, December 24th, 2023. Again, every seat is represented. And what God then does a thousand years ago to show the angels that he knows the future is he writes first and last names of every person seated in this room on the chair that you are in this morning. And now imagine the excitement this morning in heaven when after a thousand years of waiting, The angels peer over, as it were, the ledge of heaven, and they watch you walk into the room. (laughs) And with bated breath, are you gonna land in the seat that has your name on it? I even saw the Harveys over here. They started to sit further back, and it must have been the angels grinding their teeth like the Harveys are in the wrong seat. (laughs) And yet somehow in the mystery of God, the Harveys picked up and moved, and now they're sitting right over here. And the angels are like, how did he do it, right? That's what prophecy does. Outbursts of praise rung out one by one as each of you chose the seat God marked with your name on it a thousand years ago. That's called God being awesome. He can call it a thousand years in advance. So here we have in verse 6, we've got a prophecy and, and it says the ruler's going to come from Bethlehem and it's like 700 years in advance. Micah t- took out a drawing. And he said, you see this little ramshackle shed place? I'm just going to put a red X right here because that's where he's going to show up. (laughs) Promise is kept. It happened just like God said it would. Echoes of Exodus is next. So if you're familiar with the story of Exodus from Egypt in the Old Testament, you have deja vu reading all throughout this passage. Actually, you have deja vu reading throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's audience knows the story of Exodus like the back of their hand, right? So, deja vu stuff is going on. Like, you remember how early in the book of Exodus, if you've read Exodus or are familiar with it, a ruler orders the slaughter of male Hebrew babies throughout the region. And then here in verse 13, a ruler orders the slaughter of male Hebrew babies throughout the region. We've seen this before. A memory stirs, right? Verse 13 and 14 talks about their escape to Egypt and how that fulfills Old Testament prophecy. It's deja vu. Verse verse 15, he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Hosea in this case, might be fulfilled. And here's what Hosea said hundreds of years earlier. Out of Egypt I called my son. So you ask the question, the child is in Bethlehem. How is the prophecy Hosea said? about the son coming out of Egypt, how is that going to get fulfilled? He's hundreds of miles away from Egypt. Well, he's going to have to escape, and guess where he's going to go? He's going to go to Egypt. 1,900 years earlier in the days of Joseph, Israel, God's son, was protected from death by taking shelter in Egypt, only later to be called by God out of Egypt. And similar here, fast forward, another Joseph, Jesus is protected from death by taking shelter in Egypt only to later be called out of Egypt. We've seen this before, it's deja vu. Here's the darker side though, is look who's cast in Matthew two in the role of Pharaoh. The new killer of Hebrews is not the king of Egypt, he's the king of the Jews. This is a surprising reversal. This one we didn't see coming. And the ones who are his court advisors helping him locate and GPS track the child so that he can do what he wants to do are the chief priests and scribes. This is surprising. This is one of Matthew's many twist endings, right? In this passage, it's like the insiders on the outside and the outsiders are on the inside. The outsiders, men from the nations, magi, sorcerers, stargazing wizards are coming to worship and the scribes are helping Herod locate the child? Who saw this? The insiders are either hunting Christ or apathetic at his arrival and the outsiders are bringing their most valuable gifts to worship the king who has come. Echoes of Exodus next. Stargazing wizards and their gifts. So they come from the east, these men, the magi, And what they represent is they represent God's invitation to the nations to come and bring him their worship. They are, if you will, the first fruits of the global harvest of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are coming and they are saying, where is he? We've got all this stuff and we wanna give it and present it as offering and we wanna find him and bow our knees and worship the king. Again, interestingly, some 750 years before Jesus is born, The prophet Isaiah puts his pen to the paper, and here's what he says. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to your shining brightness. The riches of the sea will become yours, and the wealth of the nations will come to you. They will carry gold and frankincense. Left out myrrh, but hey, this is pretty awesome, right? Right? They will carry with them gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. And here, you fast forward 750 years and what are they doing? Guys are coming from the east, they're coming from the nations and they're bringing crazy awesome, crazy expensive gifts of gold and frankincense. And it's like Matthew's jumping up and down with a big sign in his hand saying, look who's coming and look what they're coming from and look what they're coming with. And marvel, nations are coming to his light. They're doing the very things that God foretold centuries earlier. And would it surprise us, think about this with me. Would it surprise us, given the significance of this moment, that everything has meaning tucked inside it, including the gifts that they bring. So they bring gold. Gold is what kings wear on their heads. Gold is fitting for a king. Gold always makes a statement. Gold always works. If you want to tell the person you are extremely valuable, you go with gold. It's a great option. Gold. Frankincense. Frankincense for a priest. The frankincense was stored in the temple for the purpose of sacrifices. That's not coincidental either. Myrrh. Myrrh is an oil used for various purposes. One of them is to prepare a body for burial. It's like the gifts are a symbolic way of drawing the whole arrow trajectory of the life of Jesus. It's pretty awesome. You ever ever have a memory stirred by catching a scent of something? So, so for me, um, chicken and dumplings. Now everybody's hungry. <laughs> or, uh, or another one would be uh, Brut Fabergé, which was my first cologne in middle school. <laughs> I thought it was the fanciest thing ever to just splash that stuff on my face, like $4 at Walgreens or whatever. But I thought it was, because it had a French word, Fabergé, I was like, this is super nice. Dracar Noir, right? Just take, I am in high school. The moment I smell, Dracar goes by me and I am at Grace King High School. I am doing the running man on the dance floor at senior prom. That's just, Dracar Noir was all around me that night, right? Just simply the scent of it stirs the memory. The, the wise men, they present myrrh to the child. Well, get this, fast forward 30 years and Mary is now weeping. And she's weeping uncontrollably because her son has been beaten beyond recognition. And then they put him on the cross. And just before they take his clothes off in Mark chapter 15, someone comes and wafts past Mary is the aroma of myrrh. They offer her son wine mixed with myrrh. And this knight instantly comes back to mind, you, you wonder, did her mind go right back to the night the wise men arrived and they brought this crazy expensive oil and she's like right back there and then she watches her son die and here comes Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and what are they carrying? They're carrying myrrh to prepare his body for burial. Jesus, his life is literally bookended with the scent of myrrh. The significance of Jesus' life is foreshadowed in the gifts that he receives as a child. Bring him gold because he's gonna be the king. They won't know it at first, but they'll know it later. Bring him frankincense because he's gonna be the great high priest, and you stored that stuff in the temple for centuries. Bring him myrrh because he's born to die. And then he rises again on the third day as the universal king before whom, when all is said and done, every knee, not just the magi, will bow. Speaking of bookends, notice how Matthew begins and ends his introduction of Jesus in his gospel. In chapter 1, we hear that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And in chapter 28, which we recite every Sunday, Jesus says at the end, I am with you always. Bookends of presence. Matthew's gospel is bookended by the promise of the presence of God with us, with us in our sin, with us in our suffering, with us in our grief. Christmas, at the end of the day, is about kingship. The king has come. Christmas is about worship. Worship. Bring your whole life to him and bow your knee before him. Christmas is about surprising reversals where the insiders, the Old Testament scholars know where Jesus is, but don't bother to travel six miles down the road to see the one who was promised long ago. They don't take the trouble to travel six miles to see if he's the one. And outsiders travel distant lands inquiring and bringing their most valued treasures. It's a story of surprising reversals. And Christmas is about hope. It's the stirring of a memory where we realize the curse that rested on the world since Genesis chapter 3 is not the end of the story. So we 've seen these patterns in this story, and his story then becomes our story. So you put your trust in Jesus. This is how salvation works. We see the story of what God has done in Jesus Christ in sending him to earth, Jesus' perfect life, Jesus death on the cross to bear our sins away, Jesus' resurrection in his empty tomb and then his exaltation to the Father's right hand. And then we repent and believe. We turn from whatever it was we were trusting in a moment ago, when we put our trust all in with Jesus, he's the rightful king. We serve him all our days, that's the story and that's how you step into the story and now all the narrative lines of Jesus' story become the narrative lines of your story. So you know it won't end in suffering. You know death leads to resurrection. You know exiles find their way back home. You know weeping endures for the night but joy comes. In the morning. This, friends, is the drama of redemption, and you step inside it by faith, by trusting in Jesus. And what you're going to find when you do that, and I hope you'll do it this morning if you haven't already, when you step inside this story by faith, you're going to find that every promise God ever made about your life and about your future will be kept.